Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. With the increase of cyber threats, how are backup and recovery techniques rising to the challenge? Today's guest is W. Curtis Preston, the chief technical evangelist at the data protection and management provider, Druva, also known in the industry as Mr. Backup. Curtis's nearly 30 years of experience working in backup and recovery make him one of the foremost experts in the field. On this episode of Future of Tech, Curtis talks in depth about the evolution of backup technology over the years and sheds light on what new challenges have arisen in the era of virtualization. He also offers some candid advice to anyone interested in entering the backup industry, and it may not be what you'd expect. Enjoy this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs's R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. So welcome to a new episode of Future of Tech. Today with me, Curtis uh, Preston, which is also known as Mr. Backup. Hello, Curtis. Glad to be here. You know, usually I have uh, this uh, question that I always start with, but with you, I'd like to start in a different way. Why Mr. Backup? Well, I just, you know, backup is an area of technology that so many people stay away from. That's one thing that's been, I've been in the industry coming up on 30 years. And one thing that's remained constant during that entire time is that no one wants to be the backup guy. Um, it's, it's the job that I got as the first, uh, you know, it was the first job I got in IT. So very true. Yeah. And I just essentially never got out of it. And so I, I then started getting known as the guy that the one guy that didn't hate backup and, you know, then I wrote a book and, you know, somewhere along there, I, got, I picked up that moniker, right? Because I was the, the one person who seemed to actually like backup. Nice. So how, how did your journey started? What, what was your first, um, you know, step into technology as a whole, not just backups? Very first, I, well, I, I, I sort of always, uh, I liked this idea of computers, even though I, I barely understood them at the time. You know, we had TRS-80s in high school, right? <laughs> that really dates me, but that was pretty much my only exposure. I had that and a, and a friend that had, a, had an Atari at home, an Atari computer. And so I, I always had this sort of desire towards computers. And when I was in the Navy, I actually took a correspondence course that I could take while I was out to sea 
from, again, this will date me, the National Radio Institute, NRI, where you could actually take the courses online. They sent you actually booklets, which you work through, and then you built a computer at the end. And that was my very first thing in computers. And then when I got out of the Navy, I had a, after a very brief stint at a, a company that was in the, the, the phone, like the, the automated calling space, I ended up at a bank that I was the backup guy for this. Amazingly, th this just gives you an idea of what I was saying. Here's a $35 billion company, and they handed the backups over to a guy that had his first root prompt like three months prior to that, <laughs> right? So <laughs> they were just happy to have anybody that would, that would do it, right? And um, I, I went from being the backup guy, and that was a all Unix organization. This is all pre-Windows, right? It was uh, AIX and HPOX and Solaris. And I went from that world to, um, I went into consulting. And again, when I went into consulting, I kept finding myself in situations where, where my backup experience was helpful. And so I wrote my first article based on a script that I had written for Oracle Backup. And I got the publishing bug. And next thing you know, I wrote a book and now I've written four of them. So great. Now, tell me about it. If, if you look, you know, from a bird's eye view into the history of backups, on one end, it's, it's straightforward, you know, backup, you have a piece of data or a piece of something that you want to backup and it's straightforward. Mm -hmm. What have changed in your perception throughout the years? Um, let's say, I'm not sure that we need, you know, like 30 years ago, but in the last decade or so, what, what, yeah. what are the mega changes that? Uh... Well, it's interesting. The backup space actually moves at a glacial pace because, because of all the things I mentioned earlier and because everybody's very paranoid when it comes to backup. So oddly enough, we're still experiencing and still working through some of the challenges that I remember seeing for the first time about 20 years ago. I would say there's, there's three primary challenges. The first one was tape. And it wasn't that tape was unreliable or slow. It's that it, was, it actually started getting too fast. And this, this was, I, I built a whole career off of this because everybody was using tape and thinking that it was slow and that that was the problem. And so they needed to buy more and more tape drives. And that wasn't the problem. The problem was the tape drives were actually too fast for the job. And they're this moving device that really has two speeds that had stop and go very fast. And the backups couldn't go very fast. And so uh, you had this fundamental mismatch of technology. That was the first one. And so we began the process that is still in place of migrating off of tape as the primary protection mechanism, right? It, it used to be tape was you know, it was 99% of the industry was tape. And now that's probably, uh, I'd say, a really small percentage of the industry uses tape as their initial protection. They might have a tape copy in a salt mine somewhere, but they never back up the tape initially. So that was the first one. The second one, the second major change came with the advent of VMware. And when VMware and similar technologies came out, it broke backups overnight because the backup design from the beginning of computing up to VMware, <laughs> there was 
an assumption that the backup process had basically the control of the entire server. So it was doing this very IO intensive process of backing up the data, which is fine as long as nobody else is using the computer. And so we tended to do backups at night. But the problem was that with VMware and Hyper-V and KVM and all of them, you know, you've got 20, 30, 50 servers all sharing the same hardware. So that broke backup design overnight. And there have been a number of iterations of ways to deal with that since then. And then the, the final one I would say is the advent of the cloud and SaaS. And so now the problem that today, and then I'll throw a, I'm going to throw a fourth one on there because I didn't think of it, but the, the advent of the cloud and SaaS version of the cloud, the problem is that the data center is no longer the center of the data. And now your data is everywhere and the backup designs all the way up into this point, we're all based on a big box in the data center. So how do we handle backing up data that is all over the place using a design that was based on the data all being in one place, right? And then finally, I'll say that the problem of the last year or two has been cyber attacks specifically against backups, right? Historically, backups you know, was in the corner and nobody really thought about it. And certainly neither did the cyber attackers. Cyber attackers are not new, but the idea of someone in the cyberspace directly targeting your backups to either use them to steal data, right? To exfiltrate data and use it to, you know, attack your company, to hold your data for ransom in that way, or to encrypt them in the same way that they encrypt the primary so that you then have to pay the ransom. So there, that's backup challenges of the last 20 years as I see it. Great. So we'll come back to some of them later on. I would like to, I think, focus a bit about the third one, which is, you called it cloud and SaaS. Let's start with right. quote unquote, the basics. How did cloud change backup? Maybe please elaborate a bit more and explain maybe to our audience You've mentioned it briefly, but you know, the data center is shifting. G- give us some, some more. Uh... So it starts with the fact that backup design has historically been based on a server, right? A, a server or a bank of servers. And that those servers are close to, you know, in close proximity to the thing that they're backing up. The first copy is always, you know, right. You know, it's literally, you can point to it. It's right over there. Yeah. And there was this assumption that there was LAN bandwidth between the thing being backed up and backups. And so when you went to the cloud, and again, I, I have to differentiate here between IaaS like AWS and SaaS like Microsoft 365. When you went to the cloud, well, how do I take my on-prem backup server and backup VMs that are way over there on the other side of a WAN connection um, using a design that assumes that they're right next to me, right? That was the the first problem. So the challenge is bandwidth for sure. Bandwidth and latency, yeah. And speed, yeah, latency, okay. Yeah, Yeah. and also it goes both ways, right? So meaning that it's a challenge both for backup and it's a much bigger challenge for restore, right? Yeah, so even if if I did solve the first, While I'll try to recover, I'll have this even even a worse situation because now I need to, okay. 
go to. Exactly. And so then, you know, one of the ways that you can deal with that is you start. Um, so luckily, so, and, and I, I don't know if I say luckily, it's the only word that I'm coming up with. Luckily, the likes of AWS, they came out with native backup and recovery tools. And so they call them snapshots. I don't like calling them snapshots because that already had a meaning and there's something different than what I used to think of as snapshots. But you're able in services like EC2, you know, uh, RDS, DynamoDB, all these, all these services in AWS, you can back them up to another AWS service. And so you have a backup that's up in AWS. And now we have other challenges from a, now we end up at the fourth problem. We have both availability, you know, sort of ensuring that if there's a disaster, that it doesn't take out both your primary and your backup. And then the next one is the cyber attacks against the backups, because give you an example of a, of a company called Code Spaces. They were doing all the right things. They were back while well, they were doing most of the right things. They were backing up and they had all their backups in the same account. A hacker got a hold of their account and just deleted their account. And then poof, they ceased to exist as a company. Why? Because all their primary and their backups were all in the same account, right? Which is why you don't do that. These are not problems we had 10 years ago. So it's just, it's just a list of new problems. How did the industry solve uh, you, you started touching it, but how did the industry? So you mentioned the fact that it was about latency and about uh, size. Mm -hmm. um, how, how was that solved? So really what you need to do is for each, um, for the IaaS and for the SaaS services, you just need a backup solution that is designed for that way of doing things. You can't just take your regular backup software that you had in on-prem and just load it in the cloud and, and it will just work. It's just an entirely new world. So what you need um, is, so first off, a backup. That, that problem, the cyber problem, the solution to that is to put the copy of the backups or at least a copy of the backups in a different region and in a different account. Right. So you, you segregate it. So it's, it's, you know, in the, in the backup world, we talk about the three, two, one rule, three copies of data on two different things. One of which is somewhere else, right? Typically we used to say offsite, but in the cloud world, that just doesn't make any sense. So, so make sure that it's in another account and offsite. And the problem is that in a normal enterprise world, they have hundreds of AWS accounts for a single customer. And so what you end up needing is an orchestrator, right? Is um, you add to that. So for example, you, you might have AWS, you might also have Azure, you might have GCP, and you need an orchestrator to make backups, to, to handle all the backups for all of those. Even though the services that they're handling are actually native AWS services, you just need an orchestrator to, to basically manage all of that because it's a significantly more complex job than the old days. So two follow-up questions. First of all, you've already touched the fact that companies are moving into a multi-cloud solution. As, as you mm -hmm. rightfully said, you know, they may have AWS account and then another account on Azure and another one on GCP. 
So does the same logic that you've mentioned just now applies also here? You would like to have a three to one in each of those clouds or you're looking yes. at them as one single entity? No, it, basically it's each application that you're backing up needs to be backed up in some way, right? So you, you need to have, and the three is the easy part because we typically, in a modern backup world, we have hundreds or thousands of versions of the backups, right? We have, we do a daily backup or an hourly backup and we might have 90 days or even a year's worth of backup. So the three is really easy. The two becomes a little bit harder, right? Making sure that you have it on two different kinds of things. And then the one is just make sure that it's in another region, right? So what I'm saying is in your Azure world, you need to make sure that you're in a different Azure region. You need to make sure you're in a different Azure account. Same thing in GCP, same thing in AWS. One question that you might have is, well, should I back up Azure to AWS? This was my, my second question. So what I'm going to say is that would be nice, but it becomes cost prohibitive for two reasons. Well, for one reason, and that is the fact that the cloud vendors don't want you to do that. And so they charge you a lot of money for egress, right? They want you to keep all their data within you know, each cloud vendor. So it's possible. It's just not always um, cost effective. So you just want to make sure that it's in a different region and in a different account. Okay, fine. So I think that we've touched the, the first angle. What about recovery? Mm -hmm. did, did you see also progress over there? So there has been a ton of progress in um, sort of regular recovery. So that, you know, the, the thing that I said that broke backups, virtualization, it actually made recoveries way easier because before virtualization, one of the number one challenges we have was what we call bare metal recovery, which is how do I get a new box, right? This box blew up. I need to get a new box and it's bare metal and I need to bring it to life with my backups. That was really hard back in the day. Now, bare metal recovery just means I have to restore all of the VMDKs that are associated with this VM, right? So recovery is way easier and disaster recovery is it's like a hundred times easier than it was back in the day because I can use, I can use resources like the cloud to do my DR, except for non-virtualized environments, really large enterprises that are still using Solaris and AIX and HPUX. Uh, if you're fully virtualized, DR is easy peasy with the right service or product. You just have to select the, where you want to do your DR. And what you can actually do is you can do recovery in advance. So if modern DR products do the restore before you ever need it. And so you have this, this hot standby of all of the VMs ready to go. And it's cost effective because until you need it or until you turn it on and test it, all you're paying for is the storage. You're not paying for all the compute and all the networking and all of that. So it's just, it's a very cost effective way to do recovery. This would be clearly on a cloud. So this would also apply to using the cloud as a DR to recover on-prem resources, as long as they're fully virtualized. Got you. So you're saying put kind of an instance of what you need on a cloud, and then it's already there. The, the, uh, you're just paying for the storage, and once ready, then launch all the rest of the stuff. 
Exactly. I mean, again, you need an orchestrator to make this happen. This isn't something that you're going to boil, you know, that you're going to build your own. This is a product, right? You know, I happen to work for Druva, which is one of these types of products. You buy that product or service and you, you configure it in advance and then they orchestrate it so that this happens uh, for you on your behalf. Yeah. Now, is there in your perspective, so you mentioned the fact that people are working in, in multi-cloud, but many organizations are using today a hybrid cloud due to different costs. And to an extent also the fact that not all their application fully needs the cloud or are not ready for, to be utilized on a cloud or, you know, legacy application and stuff like this. Right. Is there any difference in what we spoke up till now, if you are working in a hybrid environment, meaning you have on-prem and off-prem apps? It depends on, I mean, it's, it's different underneath how you restore an IaaS vendor like AWS versus how you restore VMware yep. is completely different underneath, but there are products that help you orchestrate it from a single layer. And so you get the illusion of the same, whereas underneath it's actually quite different. But you use, you will use very similar concepts. So you're going to recover the cloud to the cloud. That's just obvious. I don't know why you would do anything other than that, right? And then you can recover your on-prem environment to the cloud. And so you get the illusion of the same, but underneath it's actually quite different. And the, tool, the tools that are happening underneath are quite different. But in the end, what you end up with is a, is a recovered environment that is pretty, I mean, the idea that you could have an RTO, um, you know, a recovery time objective of 20 minutes for thousands of VMs is, I think, phenomenal, right? Uh, you know, when you, when you go back to my, I mean, my, I was I was at a bank with I'm going to say we had like four or five hundred servers. The idea of recovering those four or five hundred servers in anything less than a couple of weeks would be unheard of. Now, if all those servers are virtualized using the cloud and advanced technology, you can recover your entire environment in fifteen to twenty minutes and only lose about an hour's worth of data, depending on when your when your failure happens. And at what cost of uh, the same the, with the, with the same let's say not necessarily cost but with the same complexity or schema that you've just portrayed meaning you know you have a, a duplicate environment on the cloud waiting for you which will mm-hmm. be launched only per need mm-hmm. got you yeah so you you typically have backup and recovery and then disaster recovery yeah which is what we were primarily we were primarily talking about disaster recovery the backup and recovery piece is always the first thing, right? Because if you don't have the backup, you're not going to do the recovery, right? Um, the backup and recovery and sort of what we call operational recovery, which is restore that VM or restore this file or this database, that's table stakes. And then typically, if you want the DR piece that I spoke of, that's typically an extra cost. But when you compare it to the cost of either not doing anything and suffering a, a disaster recovery or uh, a ransomware attack because a ransomware attack is just a really difficult DR. Um, you know, at the at the base of it is a really challenging DR recovery, right? So it is an extra cost, but not as much. Can you explain why you you, you call it a, a really difficult DR? Yeah, great question. 
So think about, you know, forget cyber attacks for the moment. Let's go back to, I don't know, 2000. <laughs> okay. I'd been in IT for seven years at this point. What we thought about was hurricanes and floods and earthquakes and fires. What all of those have in common is when the event has destroyed your data center, the thing that destroyed your data center is now gone. The fire has been put out, the flood has receded, the hurricane has moved on, etc. With a cyber recovery, that isn't the case. You need to recover your data center in the middle of the hurricane. The hurricane is still hitting your data center, meaning the, you know, the cyber attacks, the cyber attack is ongoing. They have threatened you. They have done a ransomware attack and they've encrypted a, a portion of your, your data center or they've exfiltrated some data and they're giving you a time bomb, right? They're saying, if you, you know, if you try to recover this yourself or if you, you know, if you don't pay us by, the, you know, if you don't pay us by this amount, it's going to be this much. If you, if you wait an extra day, it's going to be twice as much, you know, and they're, they're actively attacking you as you're trying to restore. And so the hardest part of the, of a cyber recovery is first off figuring out what, because again, in a hurricane, it's really easy to figure out what's been damaged. It's all those servers over there that are underwater, right? In a cyber recovery, the first thing you, you have to figure out what actually the extent of the damage is, which servers, which servers have been attacked. So there's two levels, which have been compromised with the ransomware itself and which have actually deployed the ransomware, right? So we have to you have to shut everything down. You have to turn the servers on one at a time. You have to prevent them from, you know, looking out and talking to their command and control servers and doing further damage. It's a giant, it's, it's a real big pain is, you know, I don't know what way to say that. It's a challenging recovery to say the least. Got you. Okay. And if you're looking at that, how did the cloud technology assisted or it, it was also... Um, their way in. So how do you look at it? Yeah. So the cloud technology, um, in terms of, did it help be more secure? And did or, it help you fight those cyber attacks in a way? Yeah. So I think now, you know, we, we could have an entire podcast just on this topic and I, I fall and, and, you know, yes, I work for a cloud-based company. And so one might expect me to be pro cloud, I will say that I've, I've been here for four years and I was pro cloud before coming. I've only been in the vendor space for about four years. Prior to that, I was also pro cloud. And I'll make this statement. I will take the security of the average cloud vendor or the average SaaS vendor over the security of the average data center any day of the week, right? I'm not saying you can't have better security or good security in a data center. I'm just saying that for the cloud, it's do or die. If they don't have a solid cybersecurity plan, they basically go out of business, right? So I will trust their, um, you know, as long as you're following their best practices and doing the things that you are supposed to be doing in the cloud, then I think you'll find that as a, as a really good choice from a security perspective. So I don't see it in the most part, I don't see someone moving into the cloud as making them less secure. And from a, from a recovery perspective, I would also say that the cloud is 
it's the best thing that's happened to backup and recovery, you know, in at least during my career. Because of its availability, because of... Uh... So virtualization, which is, you know, the cloud wouldn't have been possible without virtualization. Yeah. So virtualization and cloud both have allowed us to make all compute much more available, much more resilient in general than it was when I joined the industry. But at the same time, this idea of this seemingly limitless pool of resources that I can call on at a moment's notice, right? This idea of a, of a hyperscaler where I can say, Amazon, I need 5,000 VMs now. <laughs> that ability is what has enabled the massive recovery possibilities that we now enjoy in the recovery space. So it's both the fact that the cloud just in general is more resilient and also it does offer massive recovery choices. Now I would like to touch uh, another angle which relates to privacy. Mm -hmm. How do you find uh, areas such as PII or GDPR being uh, addressed in, in, uh, in, you know, in the greater scheme of things that we've just spoken about? Right. So there are a number of elements to the GDPR and CCPA, I live in California, right? So the California Consumer Privacy Act, which in many ways is a, is a copy of the GDPR, the, with some other changes, obviously. But you know, one element of that is if you're storing personal information, you have to protect it from unauthorized access, number one. And number two, you have to protect it from loss, like deletion or corruption or, you know, a disaster. And then there's a, the third is, is the privacy aspect of like the right to access and right to erasure. Talk about that in a minute. Backup and recovery and disaster recovery tend to excel on the first two. And you have to make sure that your backup and recovery design ensures that the backup system doesn't become another place It doesn't become another attack surface for a cyber attacker that is using the backups in order to exfiltrate data in order to get access to it, right? So you have to make sure you do that. When we come to write to erasure, there's a real challenge in pretty much almost all of the backup systems. Backup systems by design are made to remember. They're not designed to forget very easily. <laughs> And so, so let me back up. With the right to erasure, what you're generally talking about is erasing a record within a database. You're not talking about erasing a file. You're talking about erasing a record inside a database. Doing that with most backup designs, some of which are relatively new and some of which have been around for three decades or more, is essentially impossible because of the way the backup has been designed, starting with, just take a, you know, the most popular database engine, Oracle. Oracle feeds the backup product a monolithic image. Here, here's the backup of this database. It's easy to go into Oracle and delete this person. It is not possible to go into all of the images that Oracle has sent you over the last 90 days And go in and surgically alter that image. It's just not, it's not feasible. 
there are some technologies, so such as Salesforce, where we're not getting a monolithic image. We're getting records, individual records as objects, which uh, a backup service like Druva can store as individual objects in, because we store, we use object storage for our backups. We don't store them in, in big monolithic images. So each record from Salesforce can be an individual object, which we store in uh, object storage. That allows us to then surgically alter because we can go in and just delete the objects that shouldn't be kept anymore. It's going to be a long time before other uh, the core backup that, you know, so, so for example, Oracle would have to change how they provide backup data to, and, and then all the backup vendors would have to catch up to that. I don't see that. I'm not hearing any chatter that the big companies like Oracle or anybody is working on that. And partly because there hasn't been an edict from like the GDPR, the, 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 the governing bodies behind GDPR to say, yes, backups are included as part of the right to be uh, forgotten. I mentioned this like a few years ago. Um, I got quoted in an article, a Chris Meller article on the register that talked about this as a problem. And the, the commission said that they were going to be providing updated guidance on this question that was two years ago. I haven't heard anything since then. So it's a challenge. And the so the concern is that you delete somebody out of your database and but it's still existing to, on, uh, yeah. on your backup. Well, the concern, it, it, it's not so bad because you're not directly accessing that data. The concern would be, let's say some time goes by and you restore your database from a backup And now you end up restoring people that you were supposed to have forgotten. That would be a real challenge. Yeah. Now, tell me a bit about your current company. So we didn't touch it at all, but can you, can you give some background about, you know, you've mentioned the fact that you've joined four years ago, but give us some, some background about right. it. Yeah. So they are, so we are to back up what Microsoft 365 is to email. So we are a SaaS solution for backup and recovery, data resiliency, disaster recovery, et cetera. And so when you use us, you get an account and you log into a, uh, a website and you simply need to authenticate us to all the things that you're backing up. So you authenticate us to Microsoft 365, you put in an OVA into your uh, VMware environment, that gives us a connection into that. If it's a physical server like a laptop or a, or a physical VM or a physical Windows or Linux server, you put an agent on there, you connect all of those things, and then you tell us which of those things and how you want them backed up. So you connect to Microsoft and you say, I want to back up all the users in Microsoft. And we say, okay, how often do you want to back them up, et cetera? How long do you want to retain that data? Same thing with the VMs and the physical servers. What you don't have to worry about, which most of our competitors do, is you don't have to worry about the backend infrastructure. Just like Microsoft 365 or Salesforce, you simply use the product and we handle the rest. So all of the backend infrastructure is, is automatically provisioned on your behalf. And so we're able to back up data centers, SaaS services, IaaS services, 
and endpoints like laptops and mobile phones. What about storage costs, which are kind of, if you are backuping, you know, uh, huge data centers and stuff like this? Yeah. So we are a one, you know, it's, it's a one price shop. So what we do is uh, there, there's two ways we price the product, depending on what we're talking about. If it's endpoints or uh, a SaaS service like 365. You price it, uh, it is a high price and then I don't care if it's a... <laughs> no, 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 meaning that on the endpoints in 365 and Salesforce and G Suite, we price it per seat because that's the way that market is purchased. So that's the way we, that's the way we price the backup, right? So it's a, it's a few dollars per person per month, depending on what service you're doing. In the data center, what we do is we do, um, are you familiar with um, deduplication? Yeah, but maybe um, explain it to our uh, yeah. to the listeners. So the concept of deduplication is, is core in backup design in the last 20 years. And that is this idea that you look across all of the images from all time and you're looking for duplicate data. And it lowers by, you know, an order of magnitude or more the amount of data that has to be sent and stored on your behalf. So we do global, what's called source-side deduplication, meaning we do the dedupe at the beginning of the backup process. So if you've got 10, the easiest thing to describe is you've got 10 Windows VMs and you're backing up that entire VM, most of those, you're only going to actually send one of them because the data's, the Windows part is the same on all of them. We notice that at the very beginning of the backup process. And so what that does is that lowers the bandwidth needed to send the data to the network but it also lowers the amount of storage that we have to store on your behalf. So we do all of that. We globally deduplicate your entire environment. And then that number, the resulting deduplicated number is what we charge you for. And it's a one price, meaning you pay, you know, a certain number of dollars per gigabyte per month. And that is regardless of the number of backups or the number of restores or the number of test restores that you do. Uh, you don't pay you know, bandwidth fees or download fees or anything like that. It's a, it's a one-stop shop. And that price includes the storage. And you'd find that that cost is very competitive, if not way less than what our competitors would charge from a TCO perspective. So the, the challenge is when we're going up directly against a competitor who only sells software, right? They're like, oh, well, I can go to this competitor. I can get a solution for $1,000. no you can get a piece of software for $1,000 and then you need to build the infrastructure and manage that infrastructure. And, and that has a cost element to it, right? So ours is a one-stop or you know, a one price fits all for that solution. Great. Now you've mentioned, and, and I'd like to pick your brain a bit about your personal career and also some questions, you know, which are wider about this industry as a whole. Do you still see a place for innovation in backup and, and re disaster recovery and all those domains? You know, I'll just say this. I have been asked that question for the last 20 years and I keep, <laughs> the thing is, yes. The problem, what happens is, so first off, there has been a ton of innovation in backup in the last 20 years. The deduplication de was a major game changer. SaaS-based backups is another game changer. We're seeing a lot of our competitors that are traditional software and hardware vendors getting into the SaaS business. But what, what has driven the backup design, I'd say more than anything, is that the things that we're backing up keep changing, right? So 
That's why I'm saying VMware messed it up. The cloud messed it up. The latest thing to mess things up has been uh, Kubernetes and containers, right? That, that again, turned back up on its head and everybody's uh, playing catch up. And I'll say for a long time, a good portion of the backup industry wasn't sure Kubernetes and containers were really going to catch on. And so they just kept waiting for uh, production workloads that needed backup. And that, so a lot of companies didn't see that for the last year or so. And so that that's the latest thing. And I'm sure there will be something else that will be after that. And so we continue, we continue to make rest- backups easier, right? I mean, the, the two things are, I'd say three things making the backups much simpler than they ever were. And they, they all, they still are making the restores much better than they ever were. And then the third, making sure that your backups are protected against all of the things that might do damage to them, which would at this point, number one of which would be uh, cyber, cyber attackers. I'd like to touch a personal question. Um, sure. Can you share with us, your, I wouldn't say the, your biggest mistake, but one a mistake that you, you can share in a positive way that people can learn from it and say something that happened in your past? Yeah, I have a great story for that. <laughs> so I've made lots of mistakes. Good. Um, the one that really stood out for me happened very early in my career. And that was we... We had a the purchasing database for that that bank that uh, that I talked about, and we lost the purchasing database. And at this point, I I'd only been the backup person for a couple of months, and we went to go do the restore. And I did what I was told to do, which was look at the logs for each restore, and if you see this message, that means that backup was no good. And so then just look at the previous backups and. I kept looking at the previous backups and I kept looking at them and I kept looking at them and they were all, they all had this failed message. And long story short, we were not able to restore this really important production database. This is very early on in my career. It was an Oracle database. And luckily there was a, a sysadmin that managed to do something magic that I still don't understand with the disk itself and brought the disk back up online so that we were able to get data off of it. What I learned at that point was a couple of things. One is the value of good documentation because we didn't have good documentation. And what ended up happening, the reason why all the backups were failing was that there was an Oracle database that had been moved from one server to another server. And there was a cron job. Cron is a scheduling tool on Unix. There was a cron job that had been putting the database in backup mode prior to the backups. And on the new server, that cron job hadn't been put in place. So I learned, you know, the value of good documentation and I learned the value of test recoveries. And I'd say that that second one is, is a huge, is that for each type of thing in your data center, you know, you've got to do those test recoveries on a regular basis to make sure that your backup process works. And then I would, I would add to that that homegrown backup, which is what that was, that we need to get away from homegrown backup as much as possible because homegrown backup, when you have a regime change, right? In my case, you know, the, the backup design was designed by the old guy and I didn't know every little element of that design. If we had used a more commercial solution, moving the server 
you know, it would have magically taken care of it, but homegrown backups, not so good. If I'm a young graduate, would you uh, recommend me to go and to, and to become an expert in backup and recovery? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> I, I, it's, it's not a growth industry in that, first off, no one, no one it, it's a really difficult job. Um, no one remembers all the, you know, all the backups that you got right. They only remember the restore that you got, you got wrong. What I would focus on is actually the cybersecurity, the cybersecurity element. The good news is that backup design has gotten so much better than when I joined the industry. Use one of the mainstream backup and recovery vendors, follow their best practices, make sure that they're doing, you know, the whole, I'd say the whole point of the backup industry over the last 10 years has been like many other parts of the IT industry to degeneralize, to not need a specialist in this area. And so uh, you look at me, like I specialize in backup design. Now I'm at a company where most of my expertise, you know, it doesn't help our customers other than just explaining the difference between what they're doing and the way we do it, right? So I, I think I would recommend them looking instead in cybersecurity because that is going to be nothing but a growth industry as far as I can tell. Clear. And during those years, did you find, probably you had, you know, low moments and high moments, but how were you able to, um, to kind of uh, balance them with your family life? <laughs> so the bulk of my career, I was in consulting, which meant plane flights and you know, lots of travel away from my house. And what I tried to do... Back up the family as well. Yeah, back up the family. Um, what I tried to do as much as I could was to be home on the weekends for the kids, to be home in the evenings, if at all possible. And I'll give, you a, I'll give you an example of something crazy that I did that the only reason I did it was my family. I, I live in San Diego, North, North County, San Diego, Oceanside. I did a gig at um, Amgen in Thousand Oaks, which is a three-hour drive, but a four-and-a-half-hour train ride From door to door, like all, all of the driving included, it was four and a half hours. And there was no way I was doing a, a three-hour each-way drive every day. But I was willing to do a train ride four and a half hours each way. I, was, I got up really early, and I would get home at like 8.30 at night. I got home every night so that I could say goodnight to my kids, right? And the fact that I was on a train, well, not The fact that I was commuting for nine hours a day and I was at the client only for six hours, most people thought it was insane. I should just stay in a hotel. I'm like, if there was a way for me to be home with my family, I would try to do it. And then finally, I would say that the other thing I tried really hard to do was to be around for the big things, be around for the birthdays, be around for as my, both my kids became theater kids. And so being there for the, uh, for the shows, making sure that I what you know so many times in movies you see you know this girl has a big performance and no oh, my dad's not here I didn't want to be that guy right so I always tried that when my kids had some sort of performance I tried to prioritize that and if you as an employer well part of I was self-employed for a big big part of the time so that made that easier if you as an employer didn't want me or let me prioritize my family I would move on and You know, my kids may say a lot of things about me as a dad. I have two daughters, by the way. They're grown now. They're in their 
are in their twenties and one of them has their own child. Um, but at least I, I don't think they thought of me as an absentee father. So um, I tried as much as I could. This is beautiful. And thank you for sharing it. In today's world, there is a war around talent, how to keep, you know, the bright people, everybody wants them. And, and also all the companies, you know, with that, how, how do you, uh, do you have like tips of how to maintain talents and how to retain them? And yeah, it's, it is a real challenge, right? You know, we are in the midst of the, of the great resignation, right? And it is, it is a talent market, right? So it's, it's a, a seller's market, whatever you want to get, you know, it, it's easy to go from company to company because there's so many companies that need that talent. And I'll make a statement and then I'll say, this is just really hard to do. And that is you've got to listen to your people. And if your people are telling you that this element of, of doing my job it is super hard why does this part of my job have to be super hard? You know, listen to them about, you know, the issues that they have with doing their job because they don't want, like, yes, there is the pay element, but I, I think that, you know, th there's a, a great management book that I bought back in the year. It's called first break all the rules. I, I love that book. And one of and they did this massive survey of, of all of the, people and pay was farther, way farther down on the list than what people thought it was. There were things like being appreciated for your job and number like right near the top was having the tools to do my job. Right. And, you know, what's it like to try to accomplish You're you're asking me to, to mount the hill, right? Are you giving me the tools to do that? Are you giving me the boots? Are you giving me the gun? Are you giving me, or are you asking me to mount the hill barefooted with a stick in my hand, listen to your people, you know, of, of what they're telling you. And that's the only, and like I said, it's, it's the bigger you are as a company, the harder that is to do. Now, I would like to uh, ask you kind of um, another career changing question. For many years, you worked on as a consultant, you shared it with mm -hmm. us. Um, what would be your lessons or, or tips for someone who wants to found a new company, either as a, you know, as a young kid that is listening to us or someone that, you know, just heard us and decided to create his new startup in the area of backup and recovery? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I've had a couple of companies over the years and I had one that it succeeded from a business perspective, but it ended up failing from an accounting perspective. And what I will say is that trust, but verify, right? If you have somebody running your accounting, make sure that you, you know, I'm going to say outsource what you can, right? Use services that are really important, like payroll and accounting services that can get you in trouble with the government. Make sure that you are doing those things as, um, you know, the way you're supposed to be doing them, right? And the only way to do that is to use professionals that do that, right? And to use services that will ensure that you're doing it. I believe strongly, especially for smaller companies and outsource payroll services, right? I work for a company that, you know, we're over a thousand employees and we use an outsourced payroll service, right? We use, we happen to use ADP, right? 
So if, you know, if it's good enough for a company of my size, it's good enough for a company that's got four people use that service because, you know, payroll is a, is a great way to get in trouble with both people and uh, the government. Right. And the other thing I would say is when you're hiring people, if you're a small company, it's really easy to just hire your friends and it's easy to hire your friends, even if you don't necessarily need that person. He's like, I'd love to work with this person, bring them on board. Make sure that you make a business decision each time you hire someone that A, they are the person for the job and B, you need that job. And I didn't do either of those things, you know, with this company that I had. And, you know, we did really well, but I, I made some hires that I, I, I shouldn't have made because I didn't really have the need, right? I made the, I made the hire saying, well, I'd like to, I'm hiring this person for growth, but we didn't get the growth that would have justified that hire. I needed to get the growth first and then do the hire that stay as much as you can, you know, stay as small as you can and only pay for things, including people when you really, really need those things, right? And run those annoying quarterly reports that let you know how you're doing financially. <laughs> you know, I didn't think about that as, as a small business. I was like, oh, quarterly reports, that's for like big companies. No, it was also for small companies. And, um, you know, if I had done that more, I, if I had done that more often, the outcome of that one particular company would have, would have probably been very different. Yeah, these are great lessons. And, and again, thank you for sharing. Now, my last, my last question to you would be more on a personal basis. How do you relax? How do you charge yourself? I like movies, man. I'm an I'm a easy peasy when it comes, you know, I, my job is such a, like, it's a, it's a thinking job, right? It's a knowledge job. And, and I talk. And, you know, I talk and I write people like, what does a chief technology evangelist do this? <laughs> this is what I do. Right. And so when, when I want to relax, there's a couple of things. I mean, I have hobbies. I I'm a big uh, barbecue person. So I, I make a, I make a, an incredible brisket. I'll put it up against your brisket any day of the week, whoever you are. Um, and I'm starting a new hobby of woodworking. Uh, that's an expensive hobby, by the way, to get into, right. You know, you're, you're out, you know, you sp you're going to spend a few thousand dollars just to have sort of the basic woodworking setup. Right. Um, but honestly, when I just want to relax, I just love a good veg in front of a good series on Netflix or who I have way too many, uh, you know, I got all the things I got Netflix, Hulu, Disney plus, uh, you know, all that HBO max. I got all, <laughs> I got all the things. And so there's always something to watch on TV. And uh, in fact, I'm actually a member of another podcast called the things that entertain us, where we just talk about the stuff that I end up watching. Um, so yeah, that's my, that's my big pastime is I'm a huge TV and movie fan. And I, I like, I like that I can just sort of lay back and veg out and I don't have to think, you know, I just let somebody else uh, entertain me. Beautiful. Curtis, um, I, I thought this would be my last question, but now I have also, you know, so first of all, I wanted to thank you. Second, you know, 
I'll brutally invite myself for a good barbecue with a brisket uh, at your place. Hey, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I need now to book a tour to the US and, and uh, we'll, we'll find a slot uh, to do that as well. Thank you very much for your, uh, you know, sharing and, and uh, thought process and, and hope seeing you face to face soon. Anytime. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.